We're going to dig into Hebrews chapter 12 here in just a moment, and as we do every week, try to give you a reminder of how you can follow along. The notes are in the bulletin there, or you can go right online, parkwaybaptist.org, click on latest message, you'll find it there to be able to follow through with, and put your own input there with your notes, and then email it to yourself for filing and be able to use. I was sitting there listening to these last two songs. As a congregation, we sang the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Peace, like a river, enters my soul. And I I thought about all of of that song. I was taken in by that, and I thought, wow, what what a song that prepares our heart for what we're getting ready to dig into. And I thought, okay, well, that's good. Now, Cammie's going to come minister in music, and uh, then we'll get into Hebrews 12. And then Cammie comes up, and she sings a song that here, the, here is the chorus, here are the lyrics. You're still Lord, you're still my Father. You'll always be mine for all of the time you're still Lord. And I thought about that and I thought, wow, that goes right along with intentional endurance in our life. God has orchestrated this service together. You are a part of something special, not because of man, but we collectively see God's hand in how he orchestrated our singing, the ministry of music, and now digging into his word. So for the next few moments, we're going to look in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to make a transition in our Live Like Jesus series, uh, a slight transition. We've been studying for four weeks on the relational aspect of the example that Jesus gives to us. And then we're going to make a transition today into this intentional part. Now, when you think of the word intentional, there's a lot of words that come to your mind, deliberate, calculated, purposeful, intent, and a lot of different things that you kind of wrap your mind around with this word intentional. Now, when you also think about Jesus and his life and his ministry, that's the word that jumps into your mind, that there was not a word that he spoke, there was not a conversation he had, there was not an idea by which he expressed, there was not an action he did that was not purposeful. Everything that Jesus did was purposeful, it was intentional. So when we look for the next three weeks on trying to fine-tune three different messages for us as a church on looking to Jesus as being intentional, really it's like start in Genesis 1, go through the New Testament, watch the life and ministry of Jesus Christ unfold, and that's intentional. So our prayer then is, God, we need you to help us to hone in on what is important, what it is that you have for us, and what can we grab a hold of, apply to our life, and be better because of it. And so that's endurance. And so join me in Hebrews 12. Look at verse number one. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. By the way, that's our key statement. Live like Jesus, looking unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then he says, verse 3, For consider him, consider Christ, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. This morning we'll look at these very simple verses, these three, and look at this intentional endurance. Father, We come before you thanking you that you have orchestrated this service today to put our minds and our heart in the direction that says, no matter what is going on in my life, you are always faithful and true to me. I therefore will call you my Lord and my Father and remain faithful to you. 
I thank you for that message this morning in song. Now as we dig into your word, we want to ask you that you would give us your message, that you would set us aside from being a distraction, but that we can communicate truth from your word. We look forward to what you're going to show us, and as we discover together today, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we study the Bible together, we'll find a lot of effective teaching methods that are used throughout the Bible, when a variety of speech, a variety of um, metaphors or similes, and that's in the New Testament, especially, you come to the Christian life, and it's used with a lot of different metaphors. I think in your notes, there's a list there of of how our Christian life is looked at as warfare, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Ephesians 6. The Christian life is looked to as like a boxing match in 1 Corinthians 9. The Christian life, the call to follow Christ, is looked to that as being a bondservant or a slave to Jesus Christ. Also, we find that in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus, and he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he gives this idea that the Christian life is to be salt and light to a dark world. Babes and living stones in 1 Peter chapter 2. And then running a race is one that we think of often. Paul would even come to the end of his life and said he had run his race. He had finished the course. He had kept the faith. And, and, uh, and so finally we see here this idea and the metaphors of the Christian life running a race. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 gives us this metaphor, gives us this analogy that we can uh, look to as this Christian life. What is it like for us? And And in our text today, we will see a variety of aspects of this Christian life or this race that we are involved in. But there's there's this theme that jumps out in these three verses, that it's looking to Jesus who endured the full weight of our suffering and therefore trust in the Father's compassionate providence. You see, when we look to Jesus, he is our example. He's the one that we're looking forward to having intentional endurance So as we look to Jesus who endured the suffering on our behalf, we can find the compassion from a loving Father. And so this intentional endurance is really important. You know, also endurance in the Christian life can never be assumed. Endurance cannot be assumed. Last night I was on Facebook checking on some things and a friend back from college had posted on their Facebook post that said this, I quote correctly, it's official, my faith in God and family are gone. A Barna study said that a majority of 20-somethings, uh, 20-something-year-olds, they're 61% of today's young adults had been churched at one point during their teen years, but they are now spiritually disengaged, 61%. In a study put out by the SBC said that 70%, 7 out of 10, two years of their high school graduation, 70%. In an article entitled, Why Christian Kids Leave the Faith, Tom Bissett, he interviewed people and asked them when and why and how they abandoned their faith. He identified four prominent reasons. This is not just 20-something-year-olds. This is adults that have grown into their 30s, 40s, and 50s who have long gone left the faith And these were the four answers they gave. They left because they had troubling, unanswered questions about the faith. Number two, they left because their faith was not working for them. Number three, they left because they allowed other things to take priority. And then number four, they left because they never personally owned their faith. Endurance in the Christian life is not a given 
Endurance is not always the story that is told ever gave up on them. Now, teenagers and adults that are here today, we have to ask ourselves, how do we avoid becoming the next statistic of Satan? (laughs) Teens, how do you keep from becoming the seven out of ten who in two years after you graduate, you'll disengage from the church and you'll completely walk away from your faith? And to the adults in here, we have to ask ourselves that same question that says, what keeps me engaged today is the same thing that keeps me engaged 20 years from now, Uh, though the pathway is not going to be smooth. Remember, it's going to still always be well with our soul. Remember the song that Cammie ministered, you'll always be mine for all of time. You are my Lord. That is not a given in everybody's heart. It doesn't just fall into place. It doesn't just happen that way. We have to be intentional. So as we study this intentional endurance, we look to Jesus Christ as our incredible example. So in verse 1, we find that we must study those who have endured before us. We study those who have endured before us. You saw the first word in chapter 12. It says, wherefore, the same word as therefore, and it's referring back to what had been written before. In the full context of this writing, the chapter breakdown hurts us in as we are digesting this. Because chapter 11 has just unfolded as the writer gives us the heroes of faith. And these men and women who are described and how they were used. And they now are going to be the witnesses that push us and keep us motivated to continue to move forward. They become our examples to study and to look at. And so we also must likewise endure with our faith like these men and women did. These heroes, as the passage says, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses... Remember, the analogy that's being used here is that there is this arena that the racer is competing and and going and finding his endurance, and and there's a cloud of witnesses. There are the spectators. There are those that are watching and cheering them on. Though the metaphor is given here for Paul or whoever is the writer, I believe Paul, you can believe who you want here as the writer of Hebrews, but as the writer puts it, I don't believe that they're saying that the cloud of witnesses is literally watching us unfold in our Christian life every day. But what they are are witnesses to the reality of someone who has been there and done that before. Someone who has lived it before and has already set the example. And so they bear witness to God's faith. We don't stand and testify of God's goodness in our life just so people look at us as somebody who's got it uh, under control or figured out. We testify of God's goodness in our life so that we can say, been there, done that, and here's what I learned, and here's how God encouraged, here's how God guided, and here's what I want to show you of how you can be blessed in the same way. So it's always directing to God, it's always pointing the attention to Him, and is always saying that this is because of God. The endurance happens because of God. It it comes by looking to Jesus. It comes by considering learned. Next time you begin to want to throw in the towel on your Christian faith, take a moment to dig into Hebrews chapter 11. Because Hebrews chapter 11 is not a synopsis of the Old Testament stories. Hebrews chapter 11 is going to unfold before your eyes the men and women who bear as our witnesses who have been there, done that, and lived faithful and true. But they're also sinners just like us. 
I mean, you begin to unfold who some of these people were. And right away at the beginning, you see like Abraham and Sarah. You see Noah. These are just imperfect people like we are. Yet God used them because they were faithful and true. Moses' parents are recorded in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Moses himself, Rahab, Rahab the hooker. You don't just be plain about it. Uh, I'll use King James Harlot if you want. But this is the woman that was in Jericho, and she was known. But she took in the two spies that came to check it out, to find out how God was going to use the Israelites to conquer Jericho. And she received them, and God rewarded her faithfulness of protecting them. And she and her family were spared. By the way, that's a great example of God's grace transforming a life right before your eyes. Don't give up on anybody. Don't throw them out with the, uh, with the dishwater or whatever the saying may be. Is it the baby with the dishwasher? Don't throw anybody out, all right? I think I mixed a few in, right? I'm used to throwing babies out with the dishwasher, dishwater, all right? Just ask Bailey in Brooklyn. That's some of the fun experiences we've had. Then there's lists like David. I mean, now you're thinking, okay, well, Rahab's a story, but now you get into the adulterer David, murderer David. Now you're thinking, well, what's going on with this list that God is using to show us of people to look back to as witnesses of endurance and faithfulness? Study the life of Samuel and the prophets. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33. I'm going to rattle fast. You follow along. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, And these all, having obtained a good report, a good reputation through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect or complete. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Wow. It is those men and women who have gone before us that we look to and we find our our endurance or our motivation, our target, our, our perseverance to continue on and to continue to fight. What an inspiring... He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. So this is, we must eliminate the distractions that control us. The distractions that control our mind and our heart and our time and our schedule, our emotions... They control every part of us, and when they're not a part of the endurance plan that God has placed in front of us, they become weights and distractions. Now, in true endurance, it's crucial to eliminate these distractions. These are really moral hindrances that, that make running... I'd like to take it up again 
And, um, and I, I ran a little bit last night from uh, my house to my parents' house to pick up my car, and, and uh, I got home, and I was half dead. And so I'm like, man, i got to really get back into this, all right, because I ran like a quarter of a mile very hard, okay? And uh, so I need, to, I need to do something about that. But I, I do remember back a few years ago, I was getting ready to go to Panama with Daniel List, Mike and Joni Odom's uh, son-in-law. And so I remember being on this big fix to really get in shape and to try to do something because I didn't want to go to the jungles of Panama and, and uh, really struggle there with endurance. And so I would eat right, and I was running, and, and I was building up endurance. Now, at that time when I was going out for these runs, I remember, I'm not, now I'm not a runner, okay, so I'm not really smart on all these things, but I knew not to take a big backpack full of things that were not helpful to the process of running. I also knew that I wasn't going to wear a big pair of baggy jeans to run in because the wind resistance and the weight of the jeans would not be really best for that type of exercise. I didn't even really take, I didn't even take a water bottle because the water bottle would, would hit me and bother me and, and however I would carry it, I don't know, if I had to hold it in my hand, it would slip and, and all of those things. So these were distractions that had to be eliminated. Now, would the backpack been helpful? Yeah, I could have carried a first aid kit. I could have carried an oxygen tank. I could have carried a lot of important things in that backpack. Would the water bottle have been helpful? Well, yeah, of course. Ask any runner. It would be very helpful to have a water bottle at any time to squirt a little cold water of refreshment to, hang, to, to go again. Um, would the jeans have been helpful? Eh, probably not. Maybe on a hot day with a sun so I don't get a sunburn. Maybe they've got some use. But you can see how we can probably try to excuse some of these things to be beneficial, but in the overall plan, you realize these are hindrances to reaching my goal. So what ends up happening then is that we have to free ourselves of that. No heavy shoes, no backpack, no jeans, and no water bottle. And in the Christian journey or in this Christian race, we must especially discard this entanglement or this this distraction, which is really a sin, it's the distraction of unbelief. The unbelief. You see, in the moments of distress in your life, in the moment of a friend on Facebook saying, it's official, I give up on God and family, I'm done. I don't know the hurt that they're facing, but I can clearly see the result of what they're going through has caused them to, to have unbelief. So here, we have to rid ourselves of the distraction called unbelief. We don't believe in ourselves sometimes. We don't believe in God. We don't believe in the process. We don't believe that this is good for us. And, and, and so we, our faith is out the window. Now, look at how Hebrews 11 started. You know this verse. Hebrews 11 started by saying, Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then nestled into verse number 6, kind of packed into all of this introduction of, of chapter 11, he says, for without it, without this faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Wow. So those two verses help us to eliminate the distraction of unbelief in our Christian journey, in our Christian race. If we want to be intentional about endurance, we have to be guided and protected by faith. Now, why do so many people just give up? I jotted a few things down that I really wanted to give you. They're, they're not an exhaustive list, but some of these, these are just my observations. I've not been in the ministry long, 2002 
what is that, 16, 17 years. 11 years in the, in the youth ministry, a year as assistant here, three years as, or two years as co-pastor, and now three years as lead pastor. And so I don't have nearly as much experience as some of you do out there that you could probably jot some of the same things or even new things that you've observed through time of why people end up giving up on God. But I noticed, number one, that they never learn to think on their own. Questions were squelched and their spirit was crushed. I have teenagers in my former youth group who are not teenagers anymore, late 20s, early 30s. And when I look at their life today, I realize that the teenager that they were in my youth group was somebody that was going through the motions. They were faithful to youth activities. They were plugged into Wednesday night youth group. But when the opportunity came or the reality came for them to begin to think on their own, they were not ready. And they had no desire to think on their own. And now all of a sudden they get into this world, they get entangled and they have not eliminated the unravel in their life. It's looking to other sources for comfort, peace, and happiness. They never learn to think on their own. Number two, the way Christians treat one another is another reason why people leave the church, why they leave the faith. This is a harsh reality. Disunity, hatred, law over spirit, dictatorial leadership. I had dinner Friday night with someone who this weekend, his, he was telling me a story of his growing up. He's in his 40s now, and he was telling me about his mom and dad who were always faithful in church, always plugged in and uh, serving in the church, but happened to be under a pastor with a dictatorial spirit and manner, one who was going to be the Holy Spirit controlling your life. You do it as I do it in order for you to be holy like me. And that dictatorial spirit became abusive with language and even physical. And, uh, and that man told me on Friday night, said, my mom and dad claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, but they left the church 20 years ago. Never have darkened the doors again. And I thought, you know, that's a sad story and a sad reality, but it's not just him. Because there are a lot of people who have been hurt by the family of God. And we say, well, you can make all excuses you want on why you don't come to church or why you don't engage with God's people and because you've been hurt or you've been uh, slandered or you, know, you think there's a bunch of hypocrites. Well, just take a look at your own life. But the reality is, is there are some cruel and harshful people out there who have been disguised within the church body, who have put daggers into people and twisted them with all of their might just to leave them bleeding out on their own all disguised with the staff of shepherding in their hand. And that cannot happen. Those people will take uh, note of that, and they will give an account for that. And I'm here to remind all of us that the unity and the spirit of a church family has to stay loving and supportive. We will address issues as we need to. We will pursue the integrity and purity of the gospel and the church but we're also going to be motivated out of love. And if you can't have a conversation with somebody in this church fueled by love, then you are in the wrong place because we are not going to beat down and batter one another at Parkway Baptist Church. We are all in this journey together, struggling in and out each and every day, doing our very best in this progress of sanctification. And instead of having somebody beat us down, we need somebody to pray us up. 
We need somebody's arm around us instead of knife in the back. The church is responsible to help each other to grow and to be brought up in the admonition of the Lord. Get off of your soapbox, quit with your complaints, and you become a unified spirit in this church at Parkway. Number three, another thing I've noticed in my few years of ministry, people who leave the faith and leave the church is they put God in a box. And because of that, he never meets their expectations. People say, how could he be a loving God if this is happening in my life? Well, guess what? That's because you've put God in a box. They have thrown our sovereign, almighty God who created all this world and holds it in his hand, and yet he has an intimate relationship in dealing with our personal lives. They put him in their own defined box. And so when things don't happen like they think they should, they begin to leave the faith. Number four, they loved the world more than Christ. This is, this is simple and yet very common. People who, in, who are entangled, they entangle themselves with the world's pleasures. They become consumed by those world pleasures and easily distracted by them. I was in conversation with Ms. Sharon just last weekend, and we were having conversation about people who used to be faithful and true in God's service and plugging away and doing God's work, and now they don't even darken the doors of a church. Why is that? Where did things go wrong? It's because of the entanglement of the outside distractions that became a strong pull to them. And all of a sudden, things in their life took priority over God. And by the way, parents, don't be shocked if your teenager doesn't make church a priority in their life because they don't see it in your life. Don't be surprised if your teenager graduates and then in college years or young adult years, they're sporadic with church attendance. They're not plugged into ministry teams. They're not involved in small group Bible studies. Don't be surprised if you've lived a life that didn't make that a priority in your home. They're going to follow your example. They will follow the patterns of what is good and what is exciting in their life. I see that with my nine and six-year-old. There are things that they like and they like to do because that's what they have seen me do and they've experienced that. So that now has become something they think everybody else does until they say it to somebody and that person looks at them like, you're a weirdo. And I'm like, honey, that's just what we do. We're the only ones that throw babies out with the bathwater, okay? (laughs) We're the only ones. Dishwasher, okay? Yeah. Number five, last thought here in this observation is that the bride of Christ, the church, was not important to them. They were not connected or invested with the bride of Christ. You know people today who are not attending church, reading their Bible, or taking active steps of growth because it's just not important to them anymore. The bride of Christ has taken a back burner. The bride of Christ is another option. You who have been a part of the Christian journey for 30, 40, 50 years, you remember a day when Sunday morning church was like the only option to do on Sunday morning. Like it was just what we did. And though there were people who probably came to Sunday morning worship services with the wrong motivation, at least they would be under the preaching of God's word, which promises that his word will not return void. 
And so that was just the way it was 30, 40, maybe even 20 years ago. But today, plenty of options. Church is on the long list of all the other options of what the family can be doing today. So all of a sudden, the bride of Christ is not important to that home. All of a sudden, the bride of Christ and the family of God is just as eager with God. And I'm here to remind us, as a young parent, I have to be reminded that church and the body of Christ has to be important. And if it's not important to me, it won't be important to Bailey and Brooklyn. If they think it's even an option or conversation on Sunday mornings of what we're going to do with our schedule that day, they'll learn and develop that pattern for the rest of their life. So we must say this intentional endurance. There are times you show up on a Sunday when you just, the last people you want to be around is this body of believers right here. You've had a bad week. You don't want questions. You don't want people accusing you. You don't want this and you don't want that. You'll grab a coffee and a donut and you'll sit in your corner and you hope that nobody wants to talk to you. I understand there are weeks that happen like that, okay? That's most every Sunday for me. No, not really. It's not, all right? By the way, I heard of a pastor one time from the pulpit say, you know what, church, you need to be praying for me that I will learn to love you. Okay, actually, my prayer is God remove you. That's my prayer. I don't know if I should have said that publicly. (laughs) Let's delete that, Jason, all right? Verse 2 and 3. We must consider Christ. This is what it comes down to. If we're going to live like Jesus with intentional endurance, we must consider Christ. Verse 2 and 3 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Verse 3, for consider him that endured such contradiction. I don't think we should have, I don't think we should be having so many consistent conversations about our failures. You know, sometimes our conversations about our failures And that seems to be all that we're consumed with and talking about. And all of a sudden, it becomes our dominating focus. And then what happens is that these guilt-driven Christian lives equal incompetent servants of Christ, accomplishing nothing for the kingdom. Let me say that again. Guilt-driven Christian lives equal incompetent Christians accomplishing nothing for the kingdom. And if there's no sin in your life, Grab a hold of it and deal with it. Take it to God. Find redemption. Find release. And find renewal. And say, I don't have to be guilt-driven. I don't have to be guilt-ridden. I don't have to talk about this to everybody else. This is something I'm laying at the feet of God. He's forgiven me, and I'm ready to move forward. So here, when we consider Christ, this intentional endurance is not about living the life, the Christian life, as the next Eeyore. It's not living it in great depression. It's not thinking about everything you're missing out on. It's saying that my eyes are looking to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the source, the beginning of our faith. He's the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. And when we find this to be something we wrap our heart around, we won't live guilt-driven lives because we're always looking to Jesus. We're always considering him. And we're finding that spirit of endurance in us. I love this looking to Jesus because in the English, we see this looking and we just glance. So, you know, we, hey, hey, look here. And everybody looks real quick. And that's, a, that's what we look at. We know that's our looking. But this, in the Greek, it's an active verb that tells us with intensity 
to look away from something to engage our looking and set it on something else. It's like when your child is so distracted and you're trying to get their attention and you say, look at me. No, 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 no. Look at me. Listen to my voice and look at me. And then they look at you and they're like, what? (laughs) And you're like, all right, out with the bathwater, all right? (sighs) I'm going to use that forever, okay? (laughs) That's the engagement here of verse number two. It's not being distracted by everything else. I got my backpack for my run, my water bottle, my oxygen tank, my blue jeans, my heavy shoes, and I'm ready to go. Oh, there's my course. Okay, we can do this. Let's go. That's being distracted. That's being entangled with unbelief in other things. So he says, be disengaged from those things and come fully committing to engaging your eyes on Jesus. That's what Peter had to learn on walking on water Oh, bold Peter, man, took a step of faith. He walked on water, walking to Jesus, hero, wow, this is awesome, until he was easily distracted by a howling wind and crashing waves, sprinkling of water on his face, and he's like, what is going on around me? He took his eyes off of Jesus, and he began to sink. So in our lives, this looking away from, in order to consider Christ, this looking is this intense engagement. Now, verse 2 and 3 tell us about this endurance of Jesus Christ. He endured the cross, he despised the the shame, and he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, you know the story of the crucifixion. And the crucifixion was designed, it was set aside for slaves and criminals. This was a time where it would be both humiliation and torture to whoever it was as their target for the Roman crucifixion. And it says and tells us that Jesus took that on and he took on that shame, enduring that shame. Think about the shame that Jesus Christ took on from the unlawful. Then there was the beating that he took on. Do you think the other two thieves on each side of him had their guts pouring out and had no way of even telling that that was a human body? I don't think so, but Jesus did. So Jesus was tormented, he was beaten, he was blasphemed. All of this shame to be taken on and then nailed to a cross that was reserved for slaves and criminals to be given this gruesome, grotesque, and lowly death. What shame he took on. Why? For the joy that was set before him. The joy of extending a gift of salvation to all the world. A joy that one day he would be at the right hand of God. The joy that he would see past the suffering, he would see past the shame and see the end goal to see the target of what God was going to do. You see, Jesus in that moment, do you think Jesus wanted that? Remember Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Lord, please let this cup pass from me. He said, but not my will, your will be done. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to give aid and help to the hurting, not to the religious. He came to to give the direction to God's will for them to be saved. And so Jesus was going to despise the shame in order for the joy to come. And I'm so thankful today that Jesus took on that cross, endured the cross, despised the shame so that we can have the joy that was set before him and we can be a part of that as well. The audience to which this letter of the book of Hebrews was written to had to be reminded of these truths. 
Because as you study this book of Hebrews, you find that they were coming fresh off of a time where they were, they were having great abundance and, and great things that were thrilling in their life. They were seeing signs and wonders, Hebrews chapter 2, two verse 4. But as those new beginnings began to wear off and life began to waver, they became weakened in their faith. And so that's why this letter was written to the Hebrew Christians to remind them of their intentional endurance. And the writer was not just going to say, follow the heroes of Hebrews chapter 11. Did you notice that? He didn't say follow them. He just said study them, the ones who are encompassing us. Christianity is not a cult of hero worship. It's a singular direction toward Jesus, only Jesus. And so the great witnesses who've gone before us, they've shown the pathway of endurance that can happen. Be faithful, remain true. But he says here, look to Jesus, consider Christ. This intentional 544-mile endurance race. I said that right. 544-mile endurance race from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. It's the world's longest and toughest ultra-marathon. In 1983, 150 world-class runners converged on Sydney for the event. On the day of the race, a toothless 61-year-old potato farmer and sheep herder named Cliff Young he approached the registration table wearing overalls and galoshes over his work boots. There's Cliff. At first, people thought he was there to watch the race, but to their surprise, Cliff Young declared his intentions to run the race and requested a number. Well, we have to understand that Cliff Young grew up on a farm without the benefit of the luxuries of horses and four-wheel drives here even in 1983. When the storms would roll in, Cliff would head out to round up 2,000 sheep on the 2,000-acre farm that his family had. So Cliff was used to this running around and doing some things, and, and sometimes he would have to run two or three days to complete the roundup of the sheep. So this incredulous staff, they issued him a number. It was number 64 that day for Cliff. As he mingled with the other runners at the starting line, again, overalls, galoshes over his work boots. And when he was mingling with the other runners, the spectators couldn't believe their eyes. Somebody said, this must be a joke. When the gun blew off, bystanders snickered at Cliff, who was left behind in his overalls and galoshes as the other runners with their sculpted bodies and running gear briskly began the race. Snickers gave way to laughter when Cliff began to run, not like the other runners, but with what would only be described as a leisurely, odd shuffle. You see, all of Australia was riveted now to the telecast, and they would watch the scene unfold. Someone should stop this crazy old man before he kills himself, became the headline. Five days, 15 hours and four minutes later, Cliff Young came shuffling across the finish line in Melbourne, winning, winning the ultramarathon. Now, he didn't win by a few seconds or even a few minutes. The nearest runner was nine hours and 56 minutes behind. Australians were stunned at this remarkable yet seemingly impossible victory. How in the world did this happen? Everyone knew that to run the ultramarathon, runners would run for 18 hours and then sleep for six, 
and then run 18, sleep for six. This would go on for five punishing days. But no one told Cliff the strategy to running this race. He just shuffled along day in, day night, or day in and day, and day and night. He, he did this each and every day without stopping to sleep. <laughs> Cliff broke the previous race record by nine hours and became an overnight national hero. Interestingly, professional runners began to study and experiment with the odd shuffle that Cliff used in his running. Many long-distance runners have since adopted what has come to know the young shuffle due to its aerodynamic and energy efficiency. When you think about this, victory in the Christian life does not come through speed, but rather through endurance. The Christian life is not a 100-yard dash. It's an ultra-marathon. Let me do one thing here in closing. If you have been saved as a follower of Jesus Christ for at least 40 years or more, would you just stand? If you, you have been a follower of Jesus Christ for at least 40 years or more, that'd be 1978 and 1879, any time before that. Would you look around? Stay standing for just a moment, okay? We're not going to applaud you. This is nothing on your behalf. But I just want to see for a moment. Because when you think of endurance, here's a picture of people who have endured 40, 50, 60, 70 years of of a relationship with Jesus Christ, or, or at 50. So your spirituality doesn't just inherit to go with you to the end of your life. It is intentional endurance. Now, for the rest of us, as we look at this crowd of people who've been saved for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, these are examples for us. That as we look, we see lives that have endured ups and downs, moments of sprinting and times of lagging behind, moments of being entangled and then having to remove it, moments of distractions and then engaging by looking to Jesus. Thank you. Please be seated. So as I look at that crowd today, I think for all of us, remember, endurance in the Christian life is never a given. It has to be intentional. We study those who have gone before us. We watch them. We learn from them. And hey, having, having trouble with parenting, with marriage, with work, with relationships, with finances. Hey, quit going to the outside sources of unsaved people. Let's come to the body of Christ. Let's be engaged with he people here. Let's find out how you have endured through this Christian journey. And by the way, we who are enduring, let's do it with a smile. Uh, let's understand that the joy that is set before us by considering Christ and looking to Jesus, don't paint a bleak picture. Don't tell somebody, I hope you survived these years of marriage. I hope your marriage is better than mine. All right? What does that do? All right? Don't say, good luck in raising those kids. Don't say, quit that job and hope you find another. Use the endurance and the story of your intentionality to be a part of sharpening the family of God. Let's quit going away to find this professional and this professional and somebody else who's got a good book that I can read. Let's begin to have conversations with our body and our body of believers that says, what did you do? Now, nobody's arrived, so we're going to say it's by the grace of God. We are where we are and who we are. But we can, with all humility, always point to Christ that says, my wife and I just made it a priority to study the Bible together. My wife and I always start our day with word of prayer. Maybe that's what you want to say. Maybe you'd say, my wife and I always made it a priority to be on the same page with raising our kids. There were times we disagreed, 
but we always did that behind closed doors. Our kids saw a unified front. Some of you would say, you know what? Finances in our home was not the priority. It was going to be church, it was going to be God's people, and it was going to be God's blessing. Maybe some of you got other stories to list, and you're just ready to have those conversations. I think as a church body, we must remember, we look to those who've gone before us. We find out how we see Jesus as the example, and we endure just like he did. That's intentional endurance. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, setting in yet another example for us to look at and for us to follow. I thank you how you reminded us in Hebrews 12, 1, to, that the race is set before us. We're engaged with it. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, we have signed up. We're wearing our number. We are geared and ready to go. We study those who have gone before us. We see the strategy. We find out what they've done. And we set out by looking to you and considering your son. Father, today, I don't, I don't know how you want to work in our hearts. I just ask that you would. Would you bring us to a place of maybe confession or maybe even a place of just commitment? It says, I want to endure. Life is hard, I know. I'm in the trenches with these dear people each and every day. I know that life is hard. But God, we need to endure. Society around us is trying to cause Christianity to close the door and crumble. Some churches, even in our own community, before they shut the door, they'll corrupt the gospel. They'll change away from the true, pure gospel, come up with a different, another gospel. It just draws crowds, gives them a sense of success, spirit of involvement. But Lord, we must stand true to what we know that you have led us to be. It's not Parkway versus the world. It's the body of Christ, living, spirit of holy, holiness, spirit of unity, striving to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. So would you give us that burden, that passion, that desire to be intentional in our endurance?